Alright, hi guys, we're going to continue reading from Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We can't hear Dave, you need to unmute yourself. Okay, hopefully that's better this time. The, the boys keep telling me what could go wrong when you're up the front preaching. Um, and I always find something to go wrong. Anyway, I'll say again, good morning everyone. It's nice to be with you this morning continuing our series in Revelation, uh, the Reset series. So we've been saying that Revelation is a, a view of the world from God's perspective. Uh, and what an eye-opener it was to John when first revealed to him. Uh, and still an eye-opener to us all these years later. It's a real eye-opener, uh, chapter 1, verse 90 to 20, to see Jesus so focused and passionate about continuing to grow and protect his church in the world. It's a real eye-opener that Jesus speaks so directly to his church uh, through these seven representative churches, uh, demanding that we reflect his passion and reflect his commitment to his church. It's a real eye-opener that the church in Ephesus looks so good from the outside, ticking all the boxes for a great church, yet they were dangerously unwell on the inside. At some point, they'd given their heart away. Jesus was no longer their validation their satisfaction or their delight. And it was a real eye-opener that the church in Smyrna, which looks so awful from the outside, staggering under endless persecution, yet they were declared rich, faithful, healthy, so single-minded in their love for Christ that they were willing to give up everything for him, even life itself. Now, every one of these um, thoughts cause us to re-examine ourselves and, if necessary, re reset. Do we have the church as central in our purposes as Christ has? Do we reflect Christ's passion as we're involved in the local church here at Grace? Do we, 
have our heart firmly attached to Jesus or have we given it to somebody else or something else? What is our view of suffering? Do we walk away from it as though somehow or other it's not compatible with the Christian life? So many things that we really need to examine and if necessary, reset so that we might be the faithful church. And this morning, Christ's word to the community of Christ in Pergamum is also a real eye-opener as he exposes their creeping compromise of the gospel. Now verse 13 starts, as with every other letter, uh, Jesus' opening words, I know, both wonderfully comforting and totally confronting. So Jesus knows the challenge of our culture. He knew how difficult it was for the community of Christians in Pergamum. Now that's a real comfort. Pergamum was a center of Roman imperial power in Asia. Uh, the high official, the proconsul, literally lived in a former palace. And he presided over an, an administration which was openly indulgent, uh, sexually immoral, uh, politically corrupt. As well as that, it was a center of learning. Large library, people coming from all over the world to study and practice a huge array of life philosophies. And the skyline was dominated by huge temples to the major Roman and Greek gods. Various aspects of these religions saturated, shaped, and dominated the daily life of everyone in the city. And verse 13, there's an image there. It, it looked and felt like Satan's home base, as if evil was enthroned. Vice became virtue. And for all its religion, it was a strongly anti the God of the Christian city, anti the God of truth and righteousness. Now, in today's term, we would say it was a cosmopolitan, permissive society, a Sydney, a Los Angeles, one we recognize only too well living here in Australia. But Jesus also knows the danger of being seduced by our culture. And now his words become really confronting. Uh, verse 13 and 14 and 15, their unwavering faithfulness and loyalty in the past, and Jesus concedes that, recognizes that, commends them for that, but that's now been undermined by a creeping compromise. In verses 14 and 15, two groups are identified. The, the first group is those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, which is an Old Testament image. Now, the story is in Numbers 22 to 31. And the king of Moab, terrified by God's people heading his way en route to the promised land, was desperate to find a way to defeat them. They were too powerful to defeat militarily. So King Balak asked Balaam to pronounce a curse on them. God intervened and wouldn't allow that. However, it appears that Balaam inferred a pathway of seduction and compromise would have the same result. It would defeat God's people. And in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 4, we have a description of how God's people became increasingly drawn into the moral 
spiritual and physical practices of pagan Moabite society. So much so to the point that they were so compromised, it was a joke to call themselves God's holy, and that word means separated, or covenant people. There was no more separation. It was just integration. The second group, verse 15, are those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, that was a new group operating in the early church, uh, and it appears it had similar, uh, it was connected to that old con concept of Balaam, the name might actually be connected, but it seems like it was a similar group, but a tad more radical. As far as the scholars know and historians know, this group promoted unjustified viewpoints which allowed Christians to take on many of the social and religious values and religious practices of their pagan society without hesitation or a sense of guilt. Well, it's all pagan nonsense, so it can't hurt us. Now, we need to understand that society in that day was really close-knit, very highly interconnected relationally. And so daily life was built around religious duty religious feasts on religious holidays in honor of pagan gods. And all of it, all of it was designed to keep the gods happy so that life was successful and prosperous. Now, it was all in to keep the gods happy. So that means if you refuse to participate in the daily temple routines, prayers, religious feasts, or religious holidays, then effectively you were condemning your whole culture, offending your whole community, alienating family and friends, and worst of all, threatening everyone's prosperity by annoying the gods and getting them offside. There was a lot at stake. But if you did go along to the community festivals, even if you didn't fully participate, then you would be associated with everything that did happen. And not only would you risk getting sucked in more and more, but your association would effectively lose any integrity or identity you might have as a Christian. It all sounds familiar, doesn't it? Living and engaging in culture is, is tough. Now, the point here in this passage is that in this pressure environment, it was easy to miss or turn a blind eye to creeping compromise. Now, we need to understand really clearly here that the problem in the church is not outright rebellion. It's not blatant disobedience. No, no, it's actually much more subtle, much more nuanced than that. It's more like how we become desensitized to the things of our culture, to the emptiness of it, to the immorality of it. And what happens over a period of time is that things we used to be shocked at, things we used to turn our eyes from, things we used to condemn, we now tolerate, we now accept quietly. We now sometimes even find ways to justify and approve. And, and make no mistake, unless we're really careful, we won't even notice it happens. That's the notion of creeping compromise. So friends, 
the question for us this morning is not if we are being seduced by our culture, but to what degree are we being seduced by our culture? Now, let's turn the question around as we move forward. What does it mean then to be Christ's faithful church in our culture? Well, this is again a call to reset our attitudes, our desires, our actions individually and together as one body. We need to remember, we must remember Christ's call to distinctiveness. The teaching right across the New Testament is that Christians, and indeed the Old Testament, Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, uh, we're told there that we have been made, told by Jesus, we have been made a kingdom of priests. Now, among other things, that means we are, at God's hand, a distinct group with the privilege and responsibility of speaking his word and modeling his character to our world. That is our distinctiveness. Again, in chapter 1, verse 12, and in uh, chapter 1, verse 16, we're, we're lampstands, we're stars. Uh, both are sources of light, emitting the light of Jesus in the darkness of our world and exposing the empty way of life handed down by our forefathers, uh, to use the words of Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Now we're called to this individually. If you look at verse 14 and 15, uh, it's very clear. Jesus is very clear. There is some in the church who hold to these things. That is, not everyone in the church is guilty of creeping compromise in that sense of being involved in those things. In fact, verse 13 says, uh, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. At some point in the past, one of the local Christians, Antipas, had been killed. Now we're not told why, but presumably in the context, it was because he refused to give in to the pressure to conform to society. He refused to play by local rules. But notice how he's described by Jesus. He's described as my faithful witness. The word there is martyr, my faithful martyr, my faithful witness. Now the point is that Jesus readily and warmly identifies with and approves the uncompromising gospel life of Antipas, even though it led to his death. Now, here's the challenge. Our so-called permissive society shows itself to be ruthlessly intolerant when someone refuses to play by its rules. And in the end, our world really only often offers two options, either seduction and compromise or alienation, persecution, perhaps even death. So, which one will you choose? It's a fairly simple equation that may help you work it out. If your starting point is to think of outcomes, that is, 
what will keep you safe? Uh, what will give you a hassle-free life? What will make you happy? What will bring greatest acceptance in the world you operate in? Then you're likely to say to yourself, well, I really need to get involved in the world. And so the question then is, how much can I indulge in the pleasures of Australian culture before calling myself a Christian becomes a joke? Do you hear the attitude in that? Now, most likely, if that's your framework, then you will be widely accepted by your mates. But you'll also be irrelevant as a witness to Christ. And worse, totally offensive to. But if your starting point is to think of values and identity, that is, who am I as a Christian? What does that mean for me? What is important in life? Then you're likely to ask, what will most honor Jesus? What will most reflect his character to those around me? And most likely, you will suffer dearly for your distinctive stand. But I tell you this, it will be the most clear and compelling witness to Christ and the changing power of the gospel. And we need to remember that the best witness is distinctiveness, not likeness. Now, we're also called to distinctiveness as a whole body. Uh, look at verse 16. Uh, and there might be some uh, discussion around this, but I think this is what, what, we're, we're, what track we're going down here, verse 16. Jesus says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. As he has been doing right through the letter, Jesus is speaking to the church as a whole. And here in verse 16, he called the church community as a whole group to repent. Now, does that seem strange to you? Why would he do that? Well, I think it goes like this. While not all are guilty of actual compromise, Jesus holds the whole community responsible for not dealing with those who were. The verses are very clear. You have some among you. The idea there is that they're there and you're not doing anything about it. And so what happens is this, that their failure or willingness to act for the spiritual good of their brothers and sisters caught up in this compromise by challenging them, challenging them actually endangered the spiritual health of the whole church. And I take it that's why Christ says that in verse 16, that if they don't do something about it, then he'll have to come. If they don't repent and take action, then he'll have to come and take them on, tackle them. Now, that possibility is downright terrifying, giving the imagery in verse 12. So go back to verse 12. Uh, and also back in chapter 1, verse 16, the same imagery. It's the imagery of the short, sharp, two-edged sword. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, Roman soldiers were feared in battle because of the new technology they used in their phalanx fighting form. It was a te new technology of a short, two-edged sword, and it was incredibly effective 
in close-up combat. Jesus is warning his church that if they do not wield the sword of his word, chapter 1, verse 16, the sword of his word was coming out of his mouth. If they do not wield the sword of his word to challenge and correct those sliding into compromise and loss of distinctiveness as people, then he will come and open them up. Quite literally, he will open them up. Now that picks up an image from Hebrews 4. He will open them up. His word will expose their inner thoughts and desires. Or worse still, Jesus may be threatening to take them out completely. Both those guilty of compromise and those guilty of not doing anything about it. Friends, this is so contrary to how we think in our individualistic Australian culture, but it comes down to this. Each of us has responsibility to guard against compromise in our whole church community. Not enough just to look after yourself and say, well, others can look after themselves. Not enough to, to make sure your own heart is right, your own pathway is right, and, and turn a blind eye to others who are on the pathway of compromise. But again, here's the problem. We are so individualistic that either we won't accept such challenge when others bring it to us, or we just ignore compromise when we see it for the sake of peace and quiet. It's not my problem. What a huge call to reset our attitudes and actions this letter is. But it finishes on a really promising and, uh, and positive note, as do all the letters. Well, all bar one. Remember Christ's promises for distinctiveness. Verse 17 holds two promises. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers or struggles through, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. First, the promise of hidden manna. What, what's that a picture of? Well, it's an Old Testament picture from the Exodus, as, as many pictures in Revelation are. And it goes like this, I think. Just as God provided for his people, even when they were thinking that more satisfaction would be found back in Egypt. Remember that? They were in the wilderness and they said, well, better back in Egypt eating onions than out here with the Lord. Even at that point, God provided them total satisfaction in manna. So Jesus, the bread of life, is complete satisfaction for hungry people. Practically, what it means is this. Don't look to the world. No matter how pleasurable, how appealing, how showy its indulgences seem, it can't and won't satisfy. But there is hidden satisfaction in Jesus. <clears throat> Remember the manna was something that God's people could see that others couldn't see. There's hidden satisfaction in Jesus. Something Christians can see and indulge in, but those around them can't see or benefit from and just think we're crazy as Christians. They don't know the hidden satisfaction that is ours in Jesus. So why Compromise, why go to somewhere else? 
that can and won't satisfy. The promise is that God's people will not miss out. There's so many things in our culture that look so appealing. And it's easy for us to start thinking that we'll miss out if we don't have them, if we don't experience them. That's the start of compromise, the attitude of compromise. Christ says to his people, you have no need to fear the consequences of being loyal and faithful to me. You will not miss out. You will have full satisfaction. You will dine on the richest affair. The second promise is the promise of a white stone with a special name written on it. And that seems really weird to us, but it wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been at all weird to people living in Pergamum. Because what it is, it's an invitation. Uh, so in Roman society, the proconsul or other high officials invited, invited, invited special guests to important events using a square white stone, actually a piece of clay. It was a square white uh, piece of clay with the person's name engraved on it. Now, in modern terms, I think it's something equivalent to having an access all areas pass to the White House. You can just wander in there because it's your place. It's your domain. You have a right to be there. You're welcome there. Jesus is promising that those who stay loyal to him, who may well experience the rejection of their society or family, will never be rejected by him. In fact, he will treat them as his special guest in heaven, where he, and again, the temple imagery comes in here, where he as the temple, remember Revelation chapter 22, the true temple, he as the temple will dwarf anything the skyline of Pergamon can boast. Remember what the temple was? The temple was where you could meet God. The temple was where your success and prosperity and security in life was, was, was found. Forgiveness and acceptance. Well, Jesus says, don't be looking at your skyline here in Pergamum. Look to me. Come to me in heaven. We'll see me, the true temple. And you will know forgiveness and acceptance with the Father. And you will see how ridiculous all this other stuff was that seemed so appealing, so convincing, so much the basis of society is just so nothing. Here on earth, you might look like just another person being abused or killed. But from the perspective of heaven, it is taking up your pre-booked seat in heaven with the Lord forever. So the final question is, whose invitation do you desire more? Whose invitation do you value more? Whose invitation do you get more excited about? Is it the invitation to be welcomed and accepted by the world, represented by your non-Christian family, your friends, your neighbors, those in your workplace, those in your sporting team, or when they offer those invitations? Is that what gets you excited? Is that what takes your, tweaks your interest? Or is it the invitation that the world offers generally, the vast array of pleasures and distractions that our culture offers. We see it on the TV all the time. That's advertising. Come and enjoy this. You haven't lived until you experienced that. You can be this sort of person in that sort of place. And it, it messes with our heads. Well, at least it messes with my head anyway. What invitation excites you? What invitation 
do you desire? What invitation do you long for? Is it that that comes from the world in myriad forms? Or is it the invitation from Jesus? You can't accept both invitations. Let me pray. Lord, again, you've spoken both words of terrific comfort. You do know our situations in great detail. But Lord, your words of comfort become words of confrontation. When you see into our hearts, you know, Lord, our attitudes. And when those attitudes are not aligned with what is becoming for us, your people. Lord, help us to hear your word. Help us to use your word and your spirits working within us to dig deep into our own hearts, to use the sword of your word to divide our thoughts and our passions right down to our innermost being so we can see what's really happening on the inside. And Lord, take action to correct that which is wrong. Help us, Lord, to avoid that creeping compromise that loses our identity and loses our witness to you. Help us to think about this as a church collectively as well as individually. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.